Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To Genesis chapter 18. As our kids are leaving, and I just want to begin this message this morning, uh, first of all, by saying thank you for praying for me. Uh, many of you have been praying for me this past week as we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, and I really appreciate the prayers of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And secondly, I just want to say, I, I don't say this enough, I haven't said it in a long time, but I just want to tell you guys I love you. I love you guys as a church, and I'm thankful to be your pastor, and I just want you to know that your pastor loves you this morning. And so, Genesis chapter 18. Now, some of you are going to laugh when I ask this question, and some of you are going to shake your heads and have no idea who these people are, but what do Fred Phelps, Rob Bell, and Jerry Falwell all have in common? And some of you are like, I have no idea who these people are. And some of you are laughing, thinking, I know who these people are. What do they have in common? Well, let me tell you about these three pastors. Let me give you a snapshot. First of all, many of you may know who Fred Phelps is. He's the pastor of Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. He's the the pastor that goes and pickets funerals of military people. He's the person that leads his church to hold up those offensive signs that say God hates and you fill in the blank with a racial or with a with a slur against homosexuals. It's this this so-called church and I call it a so-called church with Baptist in its name. Don't want to have any affiliation with them that goes around spewing hate against homosexuals. Fred Phelps, Westboro Baptist Church. Many of you maybe know who Rob Bell is. Rob Bell was a former pastor of a large megachurch in Michigan. He was a conservative evangelical pastor, but now he has basically denied the basic tenets of the faith. He believes that all people are going to heaven. He's questioning whether there really is such a thing as hell. And then this past few months, he's come out in support of gay marriage. He's basically just kind of adopted the culture. And many of you guys know who Jerry Falwell is. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's the late pastor of Lynchburg Baptist Church in Virginia, the president of Liberty University. He was the pastor who in the late 70s and the 80s basically started what we call the moral majority, where we as Christians would align ourselves with the Republican Party and hopefully vote in the right candidates so that culture would change through political activism. Now, all three of these men looked at culture, looked at an immoral culture, and they all had different responses to the culture around them. Fred Phelps says, let's just spew hate against an immoral culture. Rob Bell says, let's just kind of adopt the culture and compromise. And Jerry Falwell said, let's try to change the culture through politics. And so let me just ask you a question. Over the past 30 years, have any of these strategies really changed our culture? Has it really helped? Has being hateful and picketing things and holding up offensive signs changed the culture? Has adopting the culture changed the culture? And has voting the right people into politics changed the culture? 
I would say it really hasn't done this. Now, why do I draw your attention to these three men's strategies for encountering and engaging a a very immoral world? Here's why I do it this morning. It's fundamentally important for us as Christians to figure out biblically how we're going to engage our world. There is no doubt that we live into a rapidly changing world that's spiraling more and more into gross immorality. How do we respond? How do we respond to the outrageous immorality around us? We've got to figure it out, and we've got to figure it out fast. And we've got to figure it out biblically. And we've got to figure it out how it relates to the gospel. And so we come to Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Now, both of these chapters tell the same story. For the sake of time this morning, I can't address both of those, so we're going to focus simply on chapter 18. And here's the big question that we're going to ask this morning. Here's the question. It's a very important question, I believe, as Christians. In a culture of widespread immorality, how do we as God's chosen people respond? How do we respond to widespread, outrageous immorality that we see all around us? Well, let's read together Genesis 18, 1 through 21. We'll get to the end of the chapter in in a moment. But I, I want us to read this together, and I want us to see a model of Abraham, how Abraham engaged culture. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised. 
And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, two things jump out to you immediately in this passage of Scripture. Two very difficult theological issues that we're going to tackle this morning, okay? The first is this. Sodom's sin was very great. The outcry had come up to God, and the Scripture says their sin was very great, and it was very grave. It was outrageously immoral. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was outrageously immoral. It was a city whose sin was very, very offensive to a holy God. We see that in verses 20 through 21. Now, number two, the second thing we see is that Abraham was chosen by God to walk before God, to be holy before God, to lead his children. We see this in verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So we see two doctrines here that collide, and I'm going to try to deal with both of them this morning. The first is the doctrine of predestination, and the second is the doctrine of homosexuality. How's that for opening up a can of worms this morning? How do these two doctrines collide, you may ask? Well, let's talk about how these relate to today, okay? Because number one, Sodom was a wicked city. Do we live in a culture of wickedness today? Yes, I don't have to give you statistics. I don't have to go and show you anything. You and I live in a world where we look and say it is changing rapidly. It's spiraling downhill. We live, we're not in Kansas anymore. We live in a culture that's very, very widely becoming immoral across the board. Okay, so we're kind of in the same culture that we find Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, second question. Just like Abraham Have we been chosen as God's people? Have we been predestined by God for a purpose? And I have to say yes. Now, don't get hung up on the doctrine of predestination this morning. That's not where I'm going. But I do want to show you three passages of Scripture that talk about how we have been chosen by God and for a specific purpose. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. It says by Paul, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so regardless of what view of election you you hold to, the Bible says we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen before time began. But I don't want to focus on that this morning as I want to focus on why God chose us. Look at the rest of the text. He has chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God has chosen us to be holy and blameless the same way that he chose Abraham to be holy and blameless. God said to Abraham, I've chosen you to walk in a holy manner, to walk in integrity, to walk as differently as the world around you, and to teach your children to do the same. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of Christ in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. This passage of scripture says we've been predestined to look like Jesus. We've been chosen to walk like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to, to be, respond like Jesus. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless, to be like Jesus. 
And then in, first, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, so I'm not here to, to try to convince you of one version of, of election or another. The point is, you look at three passages of Scripture, we've been chosen by God to be holy, to be blameless, to look like Jesus, and to walk in the power and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So the purpose of God choosing us as Christians is that we would be different. We would be holy. We would walk in integrity. Our lives would be different than the world around us, the same way that Abraham was chosen to walk differently in his culture. So let me ask you a question again. This question I asked earlier. In a culture of rampant, outrageous immorality all around us, the way Sodom and Gomorrah was in Abraham's day, how do we as God's chosen people, the same that Abraham was, how do we respond? It's an important question. So before I answer how we should respond, let me give you four deficient, or sub-biblical, I should say, ways to respond. There are four deficient ways that Christians have throughout the culture, uh, or throughout the ages, have attempted to deal with an immoral culture. And I would submit to you, all four of these have failed miserably, and none of them are truly biblical. So what's the first? The first is this. The first efficient way that we can change culture is simply by political activism. Now don't hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying you should not vote. I'm not saying you should not vote for moral and social and ethical issues. I'm not saying that we should pray for God to put godly people in leadership. I'm not saying we should pray for God to change the course of our culture through politics. What I am saying is this. No Vote, no Supreme Court decision, no governor, no president, no Senate, no, no Congress is going to change a person's heart. We can have laws enacted, and somehow we think that if we just, just, just get political activism going, it's going to change this culture. And let me just say this, that ship has sailed in America. I hate to say it. If you tie yourself to a political party and you want that political party to vote your values, that ship has sailed. The Republican Party will no longer be the party of moral ethics. I guarantee you the next presidential uh, candidate who is Republican that wins will be pro-gay marriage. That's just a prediction I have. So don't tie yourself to the Republican Party thinking that that's going to be the answer to the culture. But a lot of Christians have tied themselves, like the moral majority, to political activism to try to change culture. And again, I'm not saying don't vote. We should vote. We should have godly people in office. We should be praying for our, our nation. We should be voting on social issues. We, we should be bothered by the things we're seeing. But those things in and of themselves are not going to wholesale change culture. Now here's the second deficient way. Combative and rude judgmentalism. This is the Fred Phelps way. If we just get really loud and we yell and we're rude and we pick at people and we give some, some slurs and we kind of put people down and we're rude and we're obnoxious and we're offensive, that's going to change culture. Has that ever worked? That's never worked. That tactic has failed miserably. This whole combative, judgmental, I'm going to stand in judgment over people, that's not gospel-centered. That's hypocritical. That's judgmental. 
Now, here's the third deficient way. This is through what I call fearful withdrawal and isolationism. Let's just bury our heads in the sand, pretend like culture's not happening, and let's just cross our fingers that it goes back to the 1950s. If you're an African-American, do you want it to go back to the 1950s? That's very ethnocentric. It's very white-oriented. You know, the early church, there were these monks in the early church that they saw the corruption in the Roman Empire, and they went and they lived in the, in the deserts. They went and lived in these um, monastic communities because they wanted to escape culture, and they felt like the way that we deal with this is just to isolate ourselves and become fearful and just don't engage at all. Isolationism. That's a deficient, a deficient response. Well, here's a fourth deficient response. Liberal relativism. This is the Rob Bell approach. Well, culture's changing, and so in order to be a hip church that understands culture, in order to be relative, in order to meet the culture's needs, we just adopt the culture. And we kind of equivocate and we cave in on on some key cardinal truths because after all, we maybe have understood these wrong the past 2,000 years and we've progressed and we've evolved and so let's just start accepting things that our culture accepts that go in direct opposition to God's word because obviously we're losing the battle in the culture and if we really want to be relevant as a church, let's just cave in. That's not going to work either. None of these has ever really worked. None of these really gets to the issue of how culture changes. So let me ask you a question. Can there be an effective and biblical way that engages culture with the absolute truth of the gospel and at the same time is loving and respectful and gracious? and holds out the hope of a gospel to a lost and dying world. This is the fundamental issue we as Christians are going to have to deal with. Let me say it loud and clear. How are we, as Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical Christians, going to address issues in culture, and at the same time, not cave in, not back down, but be gracious and loving and respectful? There is a huge tension there that we've got to live with, and we've got to figure out how we're going to do it. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be trying. We may fail at times, but we've got to figure out biblically how do we respond to culture without caving in, without equivocating, without without compromising, yet at the same time be loving and be respectful and offer the hope of the gospel. So as I've studied this passage of Scripture, I really see this tension of Abraham. And I want us to look at four areas of Abraham's life here that I think he models it. I think Abraham models another way, the gospel-centered way, the biblical way. And this may challenge your thinking this morning, but I think we need to be challenged. Here's the first thing that Abraham did. He displayed genuine hospitality. We see this in verses 1 through 8. 
Now, in verses 1 through 8, these three visitors come. And don't tell me who these three visitors are. There are three angels. Some believe one is Jesus incarnate and two other angels. I don't know exactly who these are, but three angelic beings show up to Abraham. And what does he do? He scurries around. He hurries around to, to be hospitable to them. He goes and he, he gets them water to wash their feet. And he goes and gets them water to drink. And he rushes to Sarah and says, bake some cakes for them. And he goes and gets his calves. And he comes back. And he's just so pleased that these men have come to his tent that he is just great graciously pouring on hospitality and inviting them in and waiting upon them and showing them genuine hospitality. And so let me ask you a question. As believers in an immoral world, we should be those who show hospitality. Now this is counterintuitive. This often doesn't make sense to us as Christians because I've found out here in northeastern Colorado, we're very private people. We don't want people messing with our stuff. We don't like to get involved in people's lives. We like to remain very distant from people, and we don't want to practice hospitality. But let me give you some biblical injunctions here this morning from the Scriptures. In Romans, 5, or Romans 15, 7, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Are we welcoming others the way that Christ welcomed us? Now let's stop and ask a question. How did Christ welcome us? Did Jesus wait for us to get our act together before he decided to die on the cross? Did Jesus say, if you guys would clean up your act, I'll come down and die for you, because after all, I'm only going to come down there if you guys get holy enough for me to come down there. Did Jesus ever say that? No, Romans 5.8 says what? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ welcomed us when we were broken and confused and lost. And let's just be real honest. Every single one of us in this room is broken, is confused, has baggage, and has a lot of issues in our lives that we deal with. We're all sinners who've been saved by grace if you're a Christian this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, my, my, my call to you is, is to trust Christ for salvation so that you can experience the freedom that comes in forgiveness of sins. But if Christ adopted the attitude that I'm only going to accept people when they get their act together, none of us would be saved. None of us would be saved. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now don't ask me what that means. I take it for what it means. Some of us might have had an angel in our home, and we may not have even known it. So show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And in that Romans passage, it says it's all for the glory of God. Okay, so... Let's, let's, let's let the rubber meet the road here. Here's the tension. Okay. We as Christians are called to show hospitality, to be welcoming, to be accepting of others. Okay, how do we do that? When a person's lifestyle is diametrically opposed to what the Scripture says. How do we welcome sinners but not affirm and endorse their lifestyle? That's going to be a hard thing to do. How do we welcome and accept and love people whose lifestyles are very different from ours without affirming and endorsing their lifestyles? That's the tension that we have to live in. 
Now, obviously, Sodom, the issue there in Sodom and Gomorrah was the issue of homosexuality. And we'll see that next week. It wasn't just the sin of homosexuality. There were other sins involved. But, but, but ultimately, guys, the issue underlying the surface of Sodom and Gomorrah was an outrageously immoral culture that had embraced sexual ethics that stood in direct opposition to God's law, especially in the area of homosexual behavior. So how do you accept, welcome, show hospitality, love, respect a person in a gay lifestyle without adopting or affirming or endorsing their behavior. Allow me to read a portion. This is, this is called an open letter to the church from a lesbian. I got this off the Gospel Coalition website. I don't agree with everything in this letter, but I do think it captures a sense of what I'm talking about. This is an open letter to the church from a lesbian. Quote, When the word homosexual is mentioned in the church... We hold our breaths and sit in fear. Most often this word is followed with condemnation, laughter, hatred, or jokes. Rarely do we hear any words of hope. At least we recognize our sin. Does the church as a whole see theirs? Do you see the sin of pride that you're better than or more acceptable to Jesus than we are? Have you been Christ-like in your relationships with us? Would you meet us at the well or restaurant for a cup of water or coffee? Would you touch us even if we showed signs of leprosy or AIDS? Would you call us down from our trees as Christ did Zacchaeus and invite yourself to be our guest? Would you allow us to sit at your table and break bread? To those of you who would change the church to accept the gay community and its lifestyle, you give us no hope at all. To those of us who know God's word and will not dilute it to fit our desires, we ask you to read John's letter to the church in Pergamum in Revelation where Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. You're willing to compromise the word of God to be politically correct. We are not deceived. If we accept your willingness to compromise, then we must also compromise. We must therefore accept your lying, your adultery, your lust, your idolatry, your addiction, your sins. We do not ask for your acceptance of our sins any more than we accept yours. We simply ask for the same support, love, guidance, and most of all, the hope that is given to the rest of your congregation. Again, I don't know if I agree with everything that she says there, but it it gives a sentiment. Do we love, respect, show hospitality to those that are outrageously immoral while at the same time not affirming or condoning or endorsing their sin. We've got to learn how to do that because I guarantee you in this room right now, and I don't know your hearts, but statistics would tell me this. In this room right now, there are either people whose family members are struggling with a gay lifestyle, or maybe you're even here this morning and you have same-sex attraction and you're struggling with that. So nobody's really immune to this system, to this this sin. It's going to affect us all. And we've got to learn how to love the sinner and not love their sin. Now, secondly, what did Abraham also do? He believed in the power of God to do the impossible. You know, we see this in verses 9 through 15. Sarah overhears these angels speaking about how she's going to have a child, and she erupts in laughter. I'm 90 years old, and I'm going to have a child. This is hilarious. 
And then God says, why did you laugh? Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word in Hebrew can also mean extraordinary or or wonderful. Is there anything too difficult for God to do? Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Mark 10, 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Do we actually believe That God in his sovereign grace can reach down to the darkest recesses of people's sins and pull them out of that and redeem them. Do we believe this? We've got to believe this. This is the only hope for a culture going astray that God can do the impossible. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, he did it for you. Every single one of us in this room were dead in our sins as we saw last week. And if it were not for Christ coming and raising us to spiritual life, none of us would be saved. Nothing is too difficult for God. There's nobody on this planet that's beyond the reach of God's hand of love, even those that are entrenched in a lifestyle that we would find repulsive. God can do miracles. We've got to believe that. That's your only hope, that God can do the impossible. You see, there's many people in this room that, that have family members or, or know people that struggle with this. And maybe you're struggling with this. There's a huge difference between same-sex attraction and actually acting out upon that through homosexual behavior or homosexual lifestyle. One has struggles, and we need to help you in those struggles and help you to understand what the biblical truth is. And the other have crossed the line and committed acts of homosexual immorality and are living the lifestyle there's a huge difference but i understand the issue because anytime you talk about sexual identity or sex or any of those types of things it goes deep to the core of your being and so sometimes people who are entrenched in these types of lifestyles find it very difficult to be released from them many of you maybe are familiar with rosario butterfield she was a lesbian english teacher She hated Christianity. She would go to college campuses and try to preach against Christianity, and she was very liberal, and she tried to, she was the whole part of the whole gay rights movement. Well, God saved her, and in God's way of having a sense of humor, she ended up marrying a pastor. And so she now goes as a pastor's wife, former lesbian English teacher who hated Christians was part of the gay rights movement. She goes to college campuses now and speaks out about how God has moved in her heart and how she's repented and she's calling people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as a former lesbian. Can God do the impossible? Yes, he did with Rosario Butterfield. We must be wholeheartedly sold on the fact that God can do the impossible. If we did not believe that that God can't do the impossible, that that nothing is too difficult for God, then we would have no hope at all for 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 the salvation of this world, for revival to hit our nation. It's not gonna come through political activism. It's gonna come through Almighty God pouring down revival in people's hearts and God doing the impossible. And we've gotta believe that. Abraham did. He God said, Is anything too difficult for me? What's the third way? 
Abraham responded. Number one, we've got to be hospitable. Number two, we've got to believe God can do the impossible. But number three, he led his children to walk in the way of the Lord. We see this in verses 16 through 21, and specifically in verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham was commanded to lead his family to godliness. So as believers, especially dads, are we leading our families to godliness? Are we leading our children to faith in Christ? Are we teaching our children? Are we, are we showing our children? This is where the tough thing comes, parents. Are you teaching your children how to navigate? What does it mean to navigate? To find their direction. Because let me just tell you this. Your kids are growing up in a culture where Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, television, video games, everything is bombarding them, and they're growing up in a culture that's totally different from the culture you grew up where everything's accepted. So you are, and I are facing an uphill battle with children growing up in this culture, and we've got to not equivocate. We can't back down. We can't say, well, that's just the way the culture's going. We've got to ramp up our efforts as parents and say, no, our children are going to be gospel-centered. They're going to be, they're going to be focused on the word, and we're going to teach them. Because let me just say this, parents. The world you and I grew up in, that ship has sailed. It's not coming back. If you want the culture that you grew up in to come back, I I may sound like a pessimist here, but I do not believe it's going back that way. I would would venture to say this, and I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet. I'm a pastor and the son of a pastor. I don't know if that means anything. But within five to seven years, I guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, I, I make a strong prediction in five to seven years that gay marriage will be legal in this country in every state in the union. And we've got to find ourselves as Christians, well, how do we navigate in that? When the laws of our land stand in direct opposition to this, how how do we navigate? How do we help our children, the children that are are born right now that will be starting high school and say 15 years from now, their world's going to be a whole lot different than the children, children that are even graduating from high school right now. So how are we as parents? I could speak all day about that, but that's what Abraham did. Now let's look at the fourth thing, because I think this is an important one. And we see this at the end of the chapter. He prayed. Abraham prayed for God's kindness to lead sinners to repentance. I want you to see the heart of Abraham. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So if the righteous fares the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, 
I will not destroy. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this one, suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Do you see the compassion of Abraham here? This is highly unusual. In the Bible, we find Moses praying that God would not destroy Israel because, after all, Israel are God's chosen people. We find Amos praying to God that God would not destroy Israel because Israel are God's chosen people. But what do you have here? Abraham praying to God that he would not destroy a pagan homosexual city. Abraham is weeping for Sodom. He's on his knees and he knows that the only answer for this is prayer. So he's interceding on behalf of lost people that God would not destroy that city. It's not a heart of hatred, Abraham. It's a heart of compassion. Abraham's pleading with God, don't destroy it. Don't destroy it. Give them time to repent, God. And God does. If you notice here, God does not immediately destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes a thorough investigation. He looks over the situation. He gives them time to repent. And Abraham pleads with him. All the way down to ten people. We don't know why he ends with ten. But it's interesting that at the end of the chapter, the Lord's the one that shuts down the conversation. Look at the last verse. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. God was done. And then it was time. So let me just say this. There is a time when God's kindness and patience does run out. Don't ask me when I know that time is. I do not know, but I do know this. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And when God says, it's enough, time is up, time is up. So if you're here this morning and you've not repented, you do not know what tomorrow holds. God has given you grace this morning by even listening to this message. There may be a time when God says, no more. But what I want you to see here is a heart of Abraham weeping, pleading, interceding for a lost culture. Do you see Abraham picketing? Do you see Abraham getting enough votes to, 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 to rule out the leaders in Sodom? What's the only thing Abraham can do? He gets on his knees and he prays to an almighty God, would you do the impossible? Now let's not pick on the sin of homosexuality this morning. And let's not elevate it above all other sins. Because let me just say this. Regardless of what sin we may find ourselves faced with in this culture, here's one of our roles as a church. It's going to be a very hard role. It's going to be a very painful role. But it's the role God has called us to nonetheless. Our role is to confront idolatry wherever we see it, especially our own. Especially our own. Because what we end up seeing in culture is behavior. We see behavior and actions in culture, and we get mad at behavior when we see lost people behaving lostly, as if we expect them to act like they're saved. And we don't realize that the root issue is not the behavior, it's the heart that needs to be changed. And in every heart, there's idols that we cling to, 
And so what we need to do as a church is that we need to expose idols of the heart, especially our own idols as a church. So let me just ask a very simple question this morning to you. It's very easy for us as evangelical Christians to throw our chest out and to point our finger at the world out there and say, get your act together. But my question for us is, can we point the finger back at ourselves and ask God, what idols in my own heart need to be smashed this morning? Before I dare point at a world out there, what idols in my own heart need to be smashed? Maybe I've got the idol of self-centeredness where I'm not hospitable. I don't open myself up to other people. I am prideful. I've got this idol of self-centeredness. Or maybe you've got the idol of of self-sufficiency where you believe you can do it all yourself. Oh yeah, I give lip service that nothing is too difficult for God, but really at the end of the day, it's me of how I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Or maybe it's the idol of busyness as parents as we're so busy as parents that we don't have time to invest in our children. Or maybe it's the busyness of, or maybe it's the idol of prayerlessness. We're not praying for a lost culture. Or maybe it's the idol of being judgmental against a lost culture. Or maybe for some of you, it's the idol of pleasure and happiness in a sexual lifestyle that you have elevated as an idol in your life. You see, no one here is immune to idolatry in our hearts. You know, a gospel-centered person sees that all of us are wretched to the core, that we need God's sovereign grace to change our hearts, and that if we're not for God's power and salvation, all of us would be hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound. So let me ask the question again. As God's people, how do we respond to a culture of immorality? And regardless of the sin, whether it's the sin out there or it's the sin in here, the answer is the same. We respond with brokenness. We respond with repentance, and we beg God to remove the idols in our own hearts for his glory. Do we want God to change the world? Yes. Do we want God to bring revival to America? Yes. Do we want to see people who are in bondage to a gay lifestyle freed? Yes. Do we want to see this out-of-control confusion in our culture reversed? Yes. Don't we? Please say yes. We want to see it. If you're you're not saying yes, then I don't understand what's going on here. Yes, we want to see it changed. But... Political activism won't do. Judgmentalism and picketing won't do. Isolationism and burying our heads in the sand won't do. And then adopting the culture and being a liberal relativist won't do. The only thing that will do is the sovereign power of an almighty God coming down in revival and coming to the deepest recesses of people's broken hearts and doing the impossible of salvation and regeneration and grace. And that's what we need to be praying for, the power of God, that our our anthem as a church would be, God, nothing is too difficult for you. I know that you can do it. I know that you can do it for your glory. It's got to be God's power. It's the only answer. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And every single person here needs this power. Every single person in this room has an idol of the heart 
that needs to come crashing down. Every single one of us in this room needs to repent in brokenness. Every single one of us here has brokenness and sin in our lives, and all of us need the power of the gospel. Not just the homosexual, all of us need the power of the gospel. So would you just be like Abraham this morning and on your knees weep and say, God, nothing is too difficult for you. I believe you can do the impossible. I'm going to pray for my culture. I'm going to pray for those that I know that are entrenched in a lifestyle they can't seem to get out of. Instead of pointing my finger in judgment or withdrawing, or trying to think that if I just voted the right way, or, or maybe I'm, I'm even thinking that it's okay. None of those are biblical. The only power is in the gospel. Would you cry out to God today for the power of the gospel to come to bear in people's lives so that true, lasting change will happen? And let it start in your own heart. Spend some time in prayer this morning. bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just issue an invitation to those of you in this room that may be struggling. It may not be homosexual sin, but it may be another heterosexual sin. And you're confused this morning and you're not quite sure the feelings that you're having or you know deep in your heart that you've, you've engaged in behavior that's not in line with what God would want you to do. The last thing I'm going to do is embarrass you and make you walk up here at the front. But I would say this. If you need a safe place to talk to someone, would you please call me or email me? Or maybe slip up after the service and just ask me a question. Let me pray for you. I want Emmanuel Baptist Church to be a safe place, a gospel-centered place where people can deal with real issues. We do not want to bury our heads in the sand here. We want to help you. We want to love you. We want to encourage you. We want to speak the truth and love to you. We'd much rather you be here than out in the world trying to figure it out on your own. So if that describes you this morning, would you please seek out either myself or Pastor Andrew or maybe one of the elders or someone you trust and they can pray for you. For the rest of you, if you want to come up after the service and and, and, and ask some questions or pray or Talk about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. I'm available as well. Father, I thank you that you're a God who can do the impossible. And Father, we want to be a people that, like Abraham, believe nothing is too difficult for you, God. Nothing's too hard for you. And Father, we want to be those that learn how to love and and show hospitality to those that are sinners and find that fine line between doing that and, and then not condoning or affirming their sin. And that's going to be hard, Father, so we need your grace and wisdom on how to do that. Father, I pray for dads and moms in this room grandparents, those that have influence over their children, they'd be raising their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, in the way of the Lord, the way Abraham was. And lastly, Lord, I pray that we would be a praying people. 
We pray for change of hearts. We pray for your gospel to go forth in power. We pray for the lost people. We pray for those entrenched in homosexuality. Lord, we pray for those that are behind the porn industry. We pray for our president. We pray behind all those, pray for all these things that, that are systemic in our culture. Lord, instead of throwing and casting stones, we'd be on our knees praying the way Abraham did for Sodom. Knowing that in the end, God, there may come a time where your kindness leads to repentance, but that time is up because you command all people everywhere to repent. For you've appointed a day of judgment where it will be too late. So help us to warn and to love and to plead and with tears tell people about the love of Jesus and the wrath to come, that they would flee the wrath to come and flee to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Would you do the impossible this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.